Thank you. I appreciate that. If your Bibles are open to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll look at a lot of scripture this morning. Uh, we're going to look at two verses over the course of the next two Sundays this morning uh, at one very important phrase that starts it out, and then we're going to follow through with that next week. In our text of 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul has the very unhappy task of defending himself. He started the church at Corinth. Uh, he spent uh, two and a half years or so in that city winning these people to Christ, uh, discipling them, training them, and so forth. And now he is writing back to them. Uh, he just has to defend everything about himself, his ministry, his leadership, his, his example, uh, his biblical authority, uh, and so forth. And and he does so reluctantly. It's not, it's not something he finds easy to do because Paul's mindset was, I'm here to promote Christ. This, uh, that's who it is all about. Uh, but, but there are times when the, uh, he had to just step forward and say, but God has called me uh, to be an apostle. And there's the responsibility that goes along with that. And this church kind of got messed up on that. Uh, uh, clearly within the church at Corinth, they, they had a lot of issues with things. And chapter 1, uh, if you actually want to turn back there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's just a few pages. Uh, when he began his first letter to them, he had to address one of these issues. There were people in the church who thought the church is sort of like intramural volleyball teams. Well, I'm on the purple team, and we're better than the green team, and, you know, all of that type of thing. Uh, look what he says in verse 10. Now, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So here's why he is making that plea to them. Verse 11, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. That means more than just you're having a fuss. They were having like war. They were having battles. It was becoming church issue here. Now this I say that every one of you saith. Evidently it was church-wide. Everybody did it. Every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, that's Peter, and I of Christ. They divided up into church teams. This section over here said, we're of Paul. He's our favorite preacher. And, and, and he's the one that started our church and led us to Christ, and we're loyal to Paul. And then this group here said, well, well, we're loyal to Apollos. When Paul left, Apollos came in, and boy, could that guy preach. Bible says he was eloquent in the scriptures, and, and he was, he was a, a very studious man, but easy to listen to. Paul, on the other hand, was more academic, and, and he was a little uh, harder to listen and tad long-winded. You think I'm bad. Paul had services that, that even after somebody died when they fell asleep, fell out of the bank balcony, and Paul raised them to, uh, from the dead, Paul went on preaching for three more hours. You ought to say, Pastor, thank you. 
we love you. But there's this group right here. No, Apollos is the one. Paul is so boring, we can hardly stand it. Then you have this group over here said, no, we follow Cephas or Peter. Uh, evidently, Peter had come through and been there. We don't know how long or in what capacity. But, man, uh, you know, the former fishermen, bold and strong in the things of the Lord. And then you had the really spiritual ones up here said, no, we only follow Christ. And we follow him so well that the rest of you don't matter anymore. You're all useless. And they, they were fighting over who their favorite preacher was. How dumb is that? That is not of God. Not even a little bit, but that's Paul's audience in, in both of these letters, First and Second Corinthians. Now we got the second letter, and uh, we got people who are questioning Paul's apostolic authority. There's always somebody that has authority issues. Um, I, I dwell in a home with three of my grandchildren, and there are moments when every single one of them have authority issues. I hear it, and I keep thinking, I'm glad Rob and Ann are going to deal with this because I don't have to anymore. I just get the love on them, and then I turn them over and go back upstairs and let you spank them. Um, uh, my, my Nathan. Uh, five-year-old Nathan, cutest little guy in the world and all of that. Don't let that fool you. Pour water on him. He turns into a gremlin. It's an authority issue. By the way, some people don't ever grow out of that. It isn't just two and three and four and five-year-olds. I know 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and 70-year-olds that are still there. Uh, Paul's dealing with that in this church. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You've, you're already in that book of the Bible. And Paul is going to address this specifically. He says in verse 11, I, I am become a fool in glorying. In other words, I feel so foolish even having, having to talk about this with you. You have compelled me. I have to do it because some of you are defiling the church with your attitudes about this. For I ought to have been commended of you for in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Paul's, Paul wasn't tooting his own horn. He knew where he came from. Uh, he, he knew his background and, and so forth. But verse 12, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. God gifted the apostle with sign gifts, the ability to work miracles as God's stamp of approval on their message and their ministry. Hebrews said that those signs were given to confirm the words that the apostles were preaching. And Paul said, I don't come behind any Peter, James, John, the rest that were Christ's companions for three and a half years. I come behind none of them in those gifts. They were all wrought among you. So here is this man, and he's de defending his authority, and it's a very difficult thing uh, to him. By the way, the church at Corinth is the only church in the New Testament that is called carnal. They got two of the longest letters, and they're the only ones called carnal. That means fleshly. They weren't a spiritual group, okay? So they're not the church that we mold ourselves after. Someone has said that nobody is a complete failure. You can always be used as a bad example. Well, there's our bad example. <laughs> some of you are just getting that now, uh, okay? And some of you, you're realizing, yeah, that's been my goal in life. Um, but, but truly, uh, the church at Corinth was a carnal church, and so Paul had many such sad and difficult issues that he had to deal with them about. In our text this morning, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we actually read of some of Paul's most familiar and famous 
statements. For example, he says in verse 6, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we, were, we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Skip one verse. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. Uh, as long as we're in this life, we're not in heaven, but one day we're going to be there. Isn't that an awesome thing? We're confident about that. Um, I, I am not worried about what's going to happen to me when my day of death comes. It is appointed unto men once to die. Uh, God knows when that day is going to be. I'm not really worried about it because I know what happens next. I know that the moment that I breathe my last breath here, I breathe my first breath in heaven. I know that when I close my eyes on this messed up world, I'm going to open them into the majesty of God. Uh, I know that when I close my eyes, no matter who happens to be in the room with me here, when I open them, I'm going to see the face of my Savior. I'm going to see the hands and the nail prints there of the one who died for me. Heaven is something I'm confident about because the scripture says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not they might be saved, shall be saved. That's a definite. Not if God's in a good mood, uh, they'll be saved, shall be saved, and God doesn't lie. That day, 50-plus uh, years ago, 1972, when I uh, understood the gospel and knew as a sinner that I needed a Savior and I called upon Christ uh, to, to save me from my sins, I had the promise of God's word that the moment I did that, I was saved from my sins. I was born again into the family of God, and I'm confident of this. Right now, I'm not in heaven. I'm, I'm absent from the Lord, but one of these days, I'm going to be absent from this body. And that ain't losing a whole lot but I'm going to be present with the Lord. And that's what a wonderful statement. Uh, included in that in verse 7, another great statement, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith. I haven't seen heaven yet, but I believe in it. I haven't seen Jesus, but I love him. Uh, I haven't seen how everything's going to end, but I believe that in the end God wins because that's what the Bible says. I believe that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I go through some bad times, difficult times, as does everyone else in this room. And sometimes I don't understand how can anything good come out of this, but by faith I believe that to be true. I can't always trust my circumstances and my situation and surroundings. They don't always look good. I can't go by sight, but by faith, I know God's still good. I know that God's still in control. I know that God still loves me. I know that God's still working in me, and I know that that's never going to change. I walk by faith, not by sight. These are some of those mountain peak uh, verses in, in the, in the uh, scriptures that we love. Verse 10. Or here's another one. I haven't even got to the sermon yet. That's why it's going to take two weeks. Um, look at verse number 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We must all. You might want to circle the word all. If you're saved, that means you. All is, comes from a Greek word that means all. Someday we're all going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Not to determine heaven or hell. If you're saved, that, that is settled. This is about reward or loss of reward. We're all going to be there, every one of us. You're not going to answer to me, and I'm not going to answer to you. 
we're going to answer to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as to how we lived our lives, the influence that we exerted, the way we treated people, the way we obeyed Scripture, our faithfulness. Um, somebody fairly new uh, walked in this morning and the church cat was outside. How many got greeted? We're going to give him an official title. We're going to put a little badge on him, says church greeter. That cat is more faithful to church than some church members. That's, that cat's here almost every day for school. Uh, how many have had the cat try to get in your car? I almost took his head off one day, not on purpose, because he, he tried to get in. It was cold, and he wanted out of there, uh, that type of thing. Uh, you know, our faithfulness and all of that, someday we're going to stand before the Lord. It'll be reward. It'll be loss of reward. Believe it or not, with everything else going on in my life, in March of this year, yours truly is going to compete in his very first powerlifting competition. Yeah, I'm competing against a bunch of kindergarten kids, but that's besides the point. <laughs> it's, it's a registered thing. Uh, there are 176,000 members of the, of the, the group that, I'm, uh, that I had to join to, to participate in this. There are only 12 adaptive athletes in the whole country that are part of it. But I'm going to participate in that in squat and, and bench press and deadlifting and so forth. And, and so between now and then, I have to decide, am I going to work hard? Am I going to train? Am I going to eat right? Am I going to do all those things? Because on that day, it's going to show. And at the end of it, they pull out this little box, you know, and there's, there, there are different levels. And, 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 you know, there's one right in the center, and it's really high, and there's one a little lower, and there's one down here that's really lower, first, second, and third. And uh, in every weight class for both men and women, somebody's going to be standing on one of those boxes, and it'll depend on, on uh, uh, everything I just said, their training and their, their dedication, their consistency about things and how well they did under the pressure of the day. Um, and I have no illusions that I'm going to be on that box, none whatsoever. You know, I'm just their entertainment value. Oh, look, that guy's got one leg. I hope it doesn't fall off, that type of thing. But someday I am going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul teaches me that in this verse. And uh, it's going to be a day that I'm either going to enjoy or a day that I'm going to be very sad. There's a song in our hymn book that says, I wish I had given him more. Uh, Paul said, boy, would you understand that day's coming? Uh, live for that day. Uh, love the Lord the way that you should. Be a faithful Christian. Serve the Lord. Share your faith because one day you're going to be there. Again, one of those great passages of Scripture that are in there. Uh, verse 17, I'm still not at my text. You doing all right? Some of you are door dashing lunch already and telling them what pew you're in so they can uh, deliver that to you. Uh, look at verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, how many are saved? You're in Christ, okay? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Man, I'm glad I'm not the person I used to be. I, I never did drugs. I was never a, a, an alcoholic or a drunkard. Uh, none, none of those things, but I was a sinner that needed saved by the grace of God, and I'm not the same person that I was when I got saved. And God keeps working on me and keeps changing me even more. He who hath begun a good work and you will perform it. That means keep on doing it till the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Man, if you just knew the backstory of the people you're sitting in church with today, some of you'd be scared to death. You'd be scared to death. But in the grace of God, an amazing thing how it changes us. That is, that is something to rejoice about and, and so forth. So this chapter is filled with such amazing text, uh, like those few that I've mentioned. But our, our text this morning is actually verses 14 and 15. 
Paul says, for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, speaking of Christ, death on the cross, dying for everyone, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live, those who get saved, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Like many of the writings of Paul, it seems like a run-on sentence. There's a lot involved in this, but it's a marvelous truth. And my hope and desire, my goal for the next two Sundays is to go through these two verses, if you will, piece by piece, and help us to just understand it so that when we look at it in its whole, the light bulb comes on and we say, wow, isn't that an amazing truth? Isn't that a wonderful thing? For this morning, though, we're going to look at just the first phrase in verse number 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Paul is talking about motive. You might want to write that in, in the margins of your Bible. If you do that, he's talking about motive. The love of Christ constraineth us. Constrain is a big word. Um, it, it's a word that we don't often use in our conversation, uh, but it's a very important word. And it's, I think the Lord had it chosen specifically here in this matter. The word constrain is by definition mean it is something that arrests us and holds us prisoner. We cannot escape it. We cannot escape it. It is that which drives us forward with but one Focus. It is something that consumes us. Allow me to use a negative illustration to help you understand what Paul's saying. Drug addiction, alcohol addiction, tobacco addiction. Addiction is something that takes over our lives. Our bodies crave it. Our mind craves it. And it begins to consume our every thought if we become Pray to one of these addictions. Gambling can be an addiction. We'll do it. Pornography is an addiction uh, and so forth. And it consumes our every waking moment. Uh, a person, for example, that has an addiction to any kind of uh, drug, let's say crack or, or, or heroin, something like that, uh, th their body craves it in a such a way that everything about them is, uh, how do I get more money to get my next fix? And someone with an addiction, uh, they, they'll, they'll uh, go through garbage cans, getting out soda uh, bottles and, and cans and things like that to turn in for the five cent uh, thing. And then immediately they get a little money and they'll go out and they'll find their dealer and, and, and they'll buy the, the next little packet to get them their, their fix and, and, and what it brings. They'll sometimes steal from their family. They'll, they'll break the laws. They'll commit crimes and everything because that, that addiction is so strong to them. That is what the word constrain means. Paul said there is something in our hearts and lives that compels us with the same drive that drugs do to a drug addict that alcohol does to an alcoholic. There is something that is driving us forward. It's not just a slight little thing. It is the all-consuming thing that drives us. The love of Christ constraineth us. Motive. Motive is why we do what we do. Um, you know the gym has to come into this somewhere. At Edge Fitness in Meriden, where I'm a member, my understanding is there are some 15,000 members to that gym. Um, 
sometimes I, it just a staggering number uh, and so forth. And there are busier times, slower times and all of that. Right now, it's very, very busy because all the New Year's resolutioners are hogging the machines that they have no idea what to do with. Uh, I give it three weeks and it'll be back to normal. But you know, everybody's at the gym for different reasons. Uh, I was never much of a gym person. You can probably tell that by looking. Uh, it didn't become part of my life until the last surgery and I lost uh, all of my leg and I knew that uh, I, I needed some help. I'm there for health reasons. I, I told you I'm competing in a powerlifting competition. That's really just something to do, something to further challenge me, but it's really there about health. Uh, being able to function, being able to walk, being able to get up in the morning. Uh, and, and it's been a journey getting my diet straightened out. Uh, I'm 65. Uh, I only get one body in this lifetime with which to serve my Savior. I need this body to be as strong and healthy as possible so I can serve him. So that's my reason to be there. Uh, period. But there are others that they're in, they're in great health. Uh, some are there for appearance sake. There are guys that walk around the gym. They're the ones that walk around like this. Uh, they're the ones that I look at and say, where on earth do you even buy clothes that fit you? Their muscles have muscles. You know what I'm talking about. And it's like, really, what did you start when you're like six months old working out? You know, that type of thing. And they're the ones wearing the string tank tops and, and all that kind of stuff because like we couldn't tell, you know, that you had to turn sideways to get through the double doors to get in the gym because you're so broad and strong. And, and really they're there. It's, it's all about appearance for them uh, and, and, and so forth. That's, that's their motive. Some are there to lose weight. Uh, there's a young man that I know that was over 300 pounds. And he, he came and he started working with the trainer. He has dropped about 150 pounds. He has dropped me. <laughs> he is now a certified personal trainer. Um, and, and he went in in his 20s and he got it w uh, in that program. I know several like that that just realized that, that they were unhealthy as they were and they were overweight and that's their motive. Some just go to hang out. They're the ones that are driving him crazy right now. They just come and I, and I see them, they walk around in little flocks or herds or, you know, covens or I don't know what it is. And, and they just, they all move from one machine to another. They're not really doing any weight. You know, if they, if they have a dumbbell in their hand, it's the kind that the girls use type thing and it's, you know, they do their thing and they're on their phone and they're talking with each other and they'll pass it back and forth and then they'll just stand around and talk and they'll start it all over again. And it's, it's their hangout. It's, it's their spot. By the way, better hangout than the bar. You know, that's fine. Just get away from my machine, please. Go hang out in the lobby or, or something like that. But, but they're there for friendship. And then there are others that are there for less savory reasons. Uh, there, there's a guy there, I've told you about him. And he's a married man, and he told me with, without, any, without blinking an eye, he comes to watch the women. Ladies, if you go to a gym, dress appropriately, because there are pigs out there that are looking at you with less than godly intentions. And that's, he, he, he told me, that's the only reason I come. The only reason I come. I've watched some of those guys get escorted out because they got caught photographing other people. Uh, in inappropriate ways, and they got banned for life, and I just wanted to applaud whoever was escorting them out. Motives, motives, and they can vary from person to person. 
Do you know that even in the things of the Lord, in the Christian life, in the service of the Lord, motives are very important. The Bible talks about them. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter number 6. Matthew chapter number 6. This is right in the middle of the famous Sermon on the Mount. The Savior's talking to his disciples. He's not talking to unsaved people. He's talking to us, if you will. In Matthew chapter 6, notice what he says. Take heed that ye do not your alms. That means your, your offerings, what you, you give. Uh, before men to be what? Seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. There are actually people that before they put their offering in, they, they had a bugle or something. Dun, 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 clink. Can you imagine if somebody did that in church? We'd all be turning around saying, what planet did you just beam down from? But that was a part of the religious culture of the day. The historians of, of that period tell us that in the temple, they didn't pass the offering plate like we do here, and many churches do that, but rather they had a large ornate box. It was covered in gold, and it had one hole in the top. It was locked and could open from the back. Uh, that hole, in, into that hole, they put like a funnel type thing in there, uh, made of metal, plastic and things like that hadn't been invented yet, so it was metal. Um, Josephus writes, it was also of gold and, and that type of thing, so that as people walked by, they could casually just throw their offering in uh, and it wouldn't miss the, the hole in the center and it would go where it's supposed to be. Um, and uh, unfortunately, there were people in that day that uh, when it was time to go in for the offering, instead of putting like a $100 bill in, they'd get $100 worth of pennies. Because a $100 bill is just going to, you're going to throw it in, it's just going to slide silently down, and nobody's going to know that you just gave 100 bucks. So they'd get $100 worth of pennies. Clank, 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 clank. And they'd learn to throw it in so that it'd circle around like those bubblegum machines, you know, the real fancy ones and all that kind of stuff. And what was the idea? They just wanted everybody to know that they gave and that they gave a lot. The Savior said, don't be like those people that do it. And here's their motive, to be seen of men. He said, don't you be like that. Um, look at uh, verse number five, when thou prayest. Are we supposed to pray? Oh my goodness, absolutely. Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the street. And here's why they do it. Verse 5, can you read the next few words with me? That they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Um, it's a motive to be seen of men. Praise praise. I, I need to be noticed, need to be recognized. We got to be careful that that is not our motive in anything that we do, but especially when it comes to the things of God. We're either doing it for him or we're not. And when we start doing what we do so that we're getting praised and the attaboy and the pat on the back and all of that, we've entered territory that the Savior said, do not be like that. Um, they're, they're, these, these individuals, by the way, any one of us can slip into that if we're not careful. Um, I, I liken them to a baby that needs burped. How many have ever done that? 
They, they've got, you know, they just finished the bottle or something like that, and they got that buildup, you know, of, of gas in the stomach. So uh, if you're wise, you sit them on your knees so that they're aimed this way. Okay, so that in, in case there's a mighty stream that comes flowing forth, it hits somebody else in the room, not you. But you just sit there, pat, 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 pat. And you're waiting and waiting for that magical moment here. And you're thinking, thank Jesus. And now you can actually look at your baby and say, I love you and it's all good and you're not in danger of getting sprayed. Okay, uh, sadly, there are a lot of Christians that are just like that. And everything, it's just constant, got to have the pat on the back. You, you got just being burped. But the problem is they never go, and they're good. It's just constant like this. The Savior said, that is a motive that no believer should have. Um, look, if you would, to the uh, book of Matthew, chapter 27. You're already in chapter 6. Matthew 27, here's another motive. Not a good one either. Not a good one either. Matthew 27, it's the night before the cross. The Savior has stood before Pontius Pilate, a Roman governor, who declared, I find no fault in him. Herod hus or Pilate hustled him off to King Herod, hoping to just wash his hands of the whole mess. And Herod uh, was hoping to see a miracle, and Jesus wouldn't cooperate. And Herod's soldiers mocked him, but he sent him back to Pilate, and I can't find anything wrong with him either. Pilate examines him again and stands a second time. He said, I find no fault in this man. And Pilate is caught between a rock and a hard place because the Jewish leaders are on his case and they can make his life miserable. If you study your, your ancient history, the Romans saw Palestine as one of the worst possible places to be assigned. Uh, nobody in their empire liked the fact that Rome ruled over them, but in Palestine, the Jewish people were worse than most everybody else. For one thing, they claimed that their God was the only God, and he was the only one that could be worshipped. By the way, they were right. They claimed that their scriptures were the only truth, and they were right. They claimed that they were God's chosen people, and that land was given to them by God. And may I say this, they were right. But they were cantankerous and they were obstinate and they hated Rome and they made it known. And so Pilate got sent there and he didn't see that as what an honor. It was just something he had to endure and so forth. And working with the Jewish Sanhedrin and the chief priests who had such great power, the high priests and so forth, was often a nightmare for Roman governors in Palestine. So he's, he's dealt with this man, Jesus of Nazareth, all night long. He's examined him. He's found no fault in him. Um, he's had conversations with him that, that actually made sense to him. But the enemies of Christ were relentless. They wanted him crucified and nothing more and nothing less. And look, if you would, please, uh, uh, Matthew chapter 27 at verse 17. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye? that I release unto you Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ. Christ wasn't his last name. It was his title, Messiah. Do you understand in the heart of the Roman governor, he doesn't understand anything about Jewish scriptures, but he knows what the Messiah is. He has spent enough time with Jesus. He's looking at him saying, there is nothing wrong with him. That must be the Christ. An amazing admission that he would do that. 
Um, so he's going to give them the choice. I'm going to release one prisoner, this Barabbas, who we know was a thief. He was a murderer. Uh, he, he had committed insurrection against Rome. Um, so uh, uh, whether the twain will I release unto you, they said Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. But I want you to back up. Pilate's dealt with all this. He's dealing with these people. He knows Christ is innocent and so forth. Go back to verse number 18. This is why he fought so hard for Christ for he knew that for what envy they delivered him it wasn't because Jesus did wrong they were jealous of him they were jealous of the multitudes that followed him but not them they were jealous that he could perform miracles and they could do none he was they were jealous that he knew the scriptures better than they did and that for envy they turned him in jealousy is a terrible taskmaster the song of solomon says that jealousy is as cruel as death you understand that over these last six thousand years of human history as billions of people are died death is never satisfied and it's it wants to claim more people and victims all the time and it will that's the way jealousy is we're jealous because somebody else got mentioned and we didn't. We're jealous because somebody else was given an opportunity and we weren't. We're jealous that someone else sang and they got more amens than we did uh, and, and, and that type of thing. Envy is a terrible thing. Uh, we're, we're really running out of time here this morning. You know, King Saul, the whole reason that he tried to kill David was envy. Envy. He heard the people singing songs. Saul has slain his thousands and David is ten thousands after the battle with Goliath. You remember when Goliath showed himself, Saul could have gone out because Saul supposedly served the same God as David and he could have trusted God and seen God give a victory. But Saul was up under a palm tree somewhere sitting in his tent, uh, uh, scared to death and refusing to move. David is the one that put his life on the line and trusted his God and lived by faith. So they're singing a song, David deserved that. He just brought down a guy that's about nine or ten feet tall. Read your Bible. Weren't any good tall guys in the Bible. Sorry, Paul. Not sorry, Rob. Read your Bible. You never saw God reaching out to a tall guy, but he went for the shortest guy in town. That isn't the sermon either. But Saul got consumed by envy, ruined his family, ruined his testimony, ruined his life trying to chase a man that he was jealous of. It's a motive. It's a motive. Look at Paul's motivation back in 2 Corinthians. And we're going exactly where we were meant to go this morning. Paul's motivation was not power. It was not money. It was not prestige. It was not envy. It was none of those things. It wasn't to be seen of men. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us everything we do is because we are so compelled by the truth that Jesus loves me this I know can somebody tell me why Jesus loves you 
The, okay, the Bible says so. I want to know why. I want to know. Well, we know he gave his only begotten son, but why? What's so awesome about you that God loves you? There is no reason. I look in the mirror and I don't know why God loves me. And you should look in the mirror and know the same thing. There's not. I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. I failed him more times than I can count. And there's not a day goes by that I don't fail him in one way or another. But he never stops loving me. And greater love hath no man than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did. He died on the cross and paid for my sin, so I don't have to go to hell and pay for them myself. That is love. And I'll never understand why he loved me enough to do anything, especially that. Paul was so consumed with that one fact, God loves me. Paul was the blasphemer. Paul was the persecutor. Paul was the one that condemned Stephen to death. By Paul's own testimony, there were others that he killed. He threw men and women in jail just for saying, I'm a Christian. Jesus is my Savior. He hated God. He hated the Lord Jesus Christ. He hated him with such a passion, but God still met him on the road to Damascus. God still shined the light on him. God still opened his spiritual eyes and he saw that he was dead wrong and that God was all right and he got saved and God changed him from Saul to Paul. God gave him a life worth living. He said, I just can't get over that. The love of Christ, the fact that God loves me, it constrains me. I'm addicted to that truth. And that's why I preach. And that's why I travel. And that's why I give. And that's why I tell people about Christ. And that's why I go to church. And that's why I study my Bible. And that's why I pray. I don't care if anybody knows about it. I don't care if anybody sees me do it. Because the only reason I'm doing it is because God loves me and I can't get over it. And there is the motive that every believer is supposed to arrive at sooner or later. I go to church because Jesus loves me so much that I can't not go to church. I read my Bible and, and just let God speak to my heart because I know how much God loves me. I give because I know how much God gave for me because he loved me. I serve because God loves me. I don't need a pat on the back. All I need to know is God loves me, and he's worthy of my praise. He's worthy of my giving. He's worthy of my time, my talent, my treasure. He's, worried, he's worthy of every breath that I breathe. The love of Christ constraineth us. And there's the motive that God's looking for. Go back real fast. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Remember that messed up church? making teams in the church of the favorite preacher. Brother Tim had been around. They'd have had him make T-shirts. <laughs> Look what Paul says in verse 31. But covet earnestly the best gifts. It's, it's a good thing to want spiritual gifts so you can serve Jesus. And yet I show unto you a more excellent way. There's something better than you being able to sing well. I, I went to the funeral of... Uh, Brother Tim's dad, Mrs. Reamer's husband. Um, your grandson stood up. Is it Joel? Jordan. Josiah. It begins with the J. Okay, I'm not here because I'm so intelligent. Josiah stood up and sang, how great thou art at the end. He's a big, tall guy like you. So God does save and loves some tall people. Um, 
And he sang it just, it just amazing. And I, I was talking with the family afterwards. I said, I, I don't know. I said, when I open my mouth, things like that don't come out. It just doesn't sound that way. He's just, God's gifted him with such an, an, an incredible talent. God said, there's something better than that. There are preachers that can preach circles around me, and I know that. And I, I, I sit and listen to them and think, why couldn't I put it that way? There's something better than that. There's something better than being the tallest, the best looking, the most talented, the strongest, the richest, all that. He says, I want to show you something that's even better than all of that. Keep reading chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity. There's the word, charity. Charity isn't dropping a few coins into the kettle of the Salvation Army. Charity is a Bible word. It means a deep, selfless sacrificial love it's a love where we're out of the picture entirely and it's all about somebody else whether that be the lord whether that be a lost person whether that be our brothers and sisters in christ that's what charity means we it's it's all about loving them to whatever whatever they need that's the love that constrained the apostle paul he said though i speak with the tongues of men and if angels and have not charity, I'm become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Can you imagine if this room was filled with violinists who actually knew how to play the violin and cellists and some on the big bass, all those stringed instruments. Brother Rob stood up and he began to lead them. Let's pick how great thou art. And all of a sudden, you know, 150 or 180 stringed instruments in perfect tune they're all playing it together. Wouldn't that sound awesome? How many, how many think so? Okay. What, how awesome would it be if every one of us in here had symbols? Every one of us. Those big brass things. Brother Jed's sitting down here. And, and he's, he's all ready to go. That's probably, that's probably the one instrument I can play. And Brother Rob stands up and says, Okay. We're going to perform how great thou art. He lifts his hands and we pull our cymbals apart. He drops them. People would be falling over. People would be having seizures. It, it would, how many think that would be beautiful? Paul says that's what we're like when we go through the motions of the Christian life. And it's not because of charity. It's to be seen of men. It's envy or any other number of motives that are less than that. Um, though I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am what? Nothing. You can give away your entire fortune, but if it's just to be seen of men, it didn't do a thing. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They, they gave a big offering. They had some land. They sold it, gave a portion to the church. Praise the Lord. But they lied about it and said that they gave all of it to the church. And we also know the only reason they did it is because Barnabas got a pat on the back and they needed burped. It's the only reason they did it. They just needed, that a boy, Ananias. How, how was God with that? Yeah, right in the middle of church during the offering, Peter confronted him and Ananias dropped down dead. Right in the middle of church. And the weird thing is nobody ran out to tell his wife. They just picked him up, took him out and buried him. That's pretty fast. No viewing, no flowers. They just buried him. Three hours later, they're still having church. 
Again, don't get on me for going five minutes too long. Three hours later, they're still having church. I think in that service, nobody was moving. <laughs> I really have to use the men's room, but I don't want to die. I, there's no way you're just, can you imagine, you know, you, you get up, I, you know, I got to go to work. And so Brother Gerber gets up, Tom, boom, and he's down. <laughs> So they're still having church three hours later. Ananias comes in. Some have speculated. It took her that long to get her makeup on that day. She's coming in thinking, my husband's already paved the way. They already know. I'll probably get a standing ovation when I walk in. And she walks in. They're all staring at her like, oh, no. Here we go again. So, Sapphira, did you sell the land for so much? Yeah, of course we did because we just love Jesus so much. Liar, liar, pants on fire. And you're, you're doing it to be seen of men. And she drops dead. So you understand they gave a big gift, but for the entirely wrong reason. And God made an example of them saying, that's not what I'm looking for. I deserve more than that out of you. Give because you love me. Serve because you love me. I am clearly out of time. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul writes to a church in the town of Ephesus. I'm not Paul, I'm sorry, John does. And it's a, it's a letter directly from Jesus. Jesus is dictating to John. That's why it's in red letters in your Bible. It's the words of Christ. It says to this church, I know your works. I know your patience. I, I know that you've taken a stand against false teachers. You've been loyal to the scripture. You have endured persecutions and trials and the years have gone by and you're still there. You're doing right. He didn't talk to them about worldliness. He didn't talk to them about uh, drugs or alcohol or anything like that. They were doing everything they were supposed to do. And then he says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Then he goes on to say, I want you to understand how big this is. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first work. Serve me the way you used to for the reasons you used to, or else I will come quickly and remove thy candlestick out of its place. The candlestick was the picture of that church. He said, I'll take that candlestick out. I'd rather have no church in Ephesus than a dead one. I'd rather have no church than one that's just going through the motions. Our motive, the love of Christ constraineth us. Every one of us as we serve the Lord will face a time where your love seems to get a little cold and you're just going through the motions. Life is caving in. Problems are, are, are coming into your life and sometimes we get out of sorts and sometimes we get off kilter. We need to go back and realize what's constraining me now. What's compelling me? Am I doing it out of obligation? That's a big thing, but that's not good enough. Or is it the love of Christ? I was a youth pastor in upstate New York for seven wonderful years. I was working seven days and five nights a week. I was the youth pastor, the music director. Uh, I was in charge of all special days. I ran the Christian school and worked full-time 
in a Christian school classroom. Seven days, five nights a week I worked. I was doing God's work. I was doing it to the best of my ability. But I was miserable. I was miserable. One January morning, I walked down into the basement of the building we rented for our school. There was a, an indestructible little gym that we had our activities and chapels and things like that in. But uh, uh, behind the gym, like we have these two rooms here, there was a room over here that was kind of storage. And I walked in that morning. Students had to arrive for school. No other staff members were there. And I walked into that room, and I dropped to my knees. There was no heat. It was bitter cold. I could see my breath. And I just started crying. And I had one prayer. It was Psalm 51, verse 12. Lord, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. I was not living in any sin that I knew of. I'm not saying that I was a sinless person, but there was nothing like that. It was just I was going through the motions. I wasn't doing anything because I loved God. I was just showing up every day because I had to. And I realized that's not enough. My Savior deserves So what's our motive? You've all got one. What is it? Can we bow our heads for prayer? You've listened so well. You've been patient.